Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. 968 of the Pew Bibles. That is 968 of the Pew Bibles. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who, who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on, a st- on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. May your word live in us. come to our time in the word, let's pray. Our heavenly Lord, please be with us as we contemplate the word that you taught to your church to grow disciples. And we pray we would accept these commands, these promises, these comforts. And in the power of the spirit, we would live them out so they would become true, not just at the level of our ascent, but how we live. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, These are the first verses of the Sermon on the Mount, possibly the greatest sermon that has ever been uh, preached. And it's ironic, we do sermons about a sermon. Interesting thought if you think about it. But it's one of five major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. And you could call these five speeches that change the world. And they all accentuate that Jesus is our only teacher. In fact, if you go to Matthew 23, it says that, you know, call no man rabbi, you have one rabbi, and that is the Messiah. Which is why I like being called professor. You have one professor, and that is the Messiah. That is the Lord Jesus. And he teaches his people various things, teaches the disciples various things about the kingdom, about the church, about the end, and the like. But in the Sermon on the Mount, 
what we have, I think, is above all the righteousness that is to characterize the disciples of the kingdom. And we have the teachings of our great teacher on this various topic. And, you know, I've always, always wondered what, what makes such great teaching memorable? What makes such great teachers great teachers? I, and I, I think who are some of the teachers I've remembered over the course of my life? When I was in grade three, I had one uh, particularly good teacher called Mr. Leach. And I don't remember much of what he told me. We're doing like, you know, real basic primary school stuff. But I remember, above all, the kindness he showed towards me. That's what I, I, I remember him. And I think of other teachers, even the teachers I had when I went through Bible college. I remember, you know, some of the new things they taught me, uh, interesting ways they showed me of of looking at things. Uh, and there were those few uh, epiphany moments that they gave. But what I really remember about them was how they inspired me with certain things and how they treated me. That, that's the main thing I remember. Not so much the content, but rather their passion and their disposition towards me. It makes me think as well, what will my students remember about me? Will they remember my great love for Jesus or my pathological hatred of coffee? <laughs> will they remember the warmth and kindness I treated them with or the really weird green jacket I'm known to wear? And here's the thing for you to consider. I mean, you're here to be trained, so in some sense, in some way, in some context, you can be teachers. Whether you're involved in children's ministry, whether you're doing youth ministry, university ministry, or just helping out in your church or pastoring your church, being an associate minister or being a missionary somewhere, what are people going to remember about you, your teaching, your instruction? Well, if we're going to do anything we want to be remembered by, we need to be remembered for our love of God, our love for others, and having a God-centered view of the world. Because you won't, be, you won't be so much remembered for your pedagogy, but more for your passion. What people will take from you is not so much information as much as inspiration. What they will get from you is how contagious your passion was on the topics of which you spoke and how you spoke about them. The best teachers are not simply the best deliverers of data, but they're people who give a new perspective, a new passion on some specific topic. And here we have Jesus not simply giving his, ton, his top 10 tips to live by, okay? He's not simply offering good advice. He's communicating a kingdom vision for what it means for God's people to be God's people. What is the righteousness that characterizes his followers? And he imparts to them a kingdom perspective so his followers will be different and so that they will make a difference. And it's also clear when you read 
the Sermon on the Mount, or almost anything Jesus taught. He's not the ordinary Jewish teacher. I mean, there was, there was a lot of teachers in first century Israel. Uh, but he's not simply a rabbi engaged in a dispute. He says, well, Rabbi Herschel says this, Rabbi Moshe says this, but I've got my own ideas on the topic. He doesn't argue in those sorts of terms. He's not like a philosopher who, like a Socrates, trying to, to interrogate people with more endless questions. He's more like a new Moses. He goes up the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, but he's not simply giving a new law. What he claims to provide is a sense of unmediated divine authority, not propositions to be discussed, but a whole new perspective on what it means to be God's people. And that is largely what he covers in the opening passages of the Sermon on the Mount, looking at what we would call traditionally the Beatitudes, and then on the exhortation for the church to be salt and light. Now, again, let me emphasize the purpose of this is not simply to impart new information. This is about giving you a new way of viewing the world and a new scandalous, dare we say, traumatic, uh, in the sense of being very subversive and upending values in the world is the way Jesus wants people to live. He wants us to live these kingdom values in a way that will stand out and goes against the grain. And when it comes to the Beatitudes, we can break, we can break these basically down into promises and purposes of his command. In verses uh, 3 and to 5, we have what we could call uh, a number of promises. Those promises are that hap blessed, or my translation says happy are the poor. Happy are those who are hopeless because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those deprived of economic status, means, they are blessed because they will possess the kingdom. The mourners who experience grief, pain, and loss, they are blessed because they will experience comfort and consolation. The meek, the unassuming, the forgotten, those who appear to be invisible to most, they will inherit the earth. Now, why are these statements mean These are somewhat radical reversals of things. God promises this because he sides with the vulnerable, the people who are the have-nots, the never-wers, the forgotten ones, the mourn, the meek. Uh, those have been chosen to experience blessings, but they're not simply because, you know, a type of compensation to make up for their miserable condition. They are singled out because God has a special concern for the vulnerable. When the world is stacked against you is when God is most on your side. God truly does favor the undergod. Underdog, not the underdog, under God. Very bad turn of phrase. <laughs> Secondly, these, these, these blessings, they're not, it's, not, it's, it's about grace, not karma. You know, one of my favorite TV shows from the early noughties was a show called My Name is Earl. And remember that show? It's about a guy who basically gets like a, a winning um, scratch it, and he wins a lot of money, but this guy's an absolute scumbag and a criminal, and he doesn't deserve it. And then a whole bunch of bad things happen to him, and he realizes that karma gave him this load of cash so he could go and right all of his wrongs. If he doesn't do it quite right, karma's going to get him. Uh, there is no Christian version of karma, even like the two ways to live. 
is not karma. Okay? What we believe in is grace. Uh, you see, the, the, the blessings we have here are, are, are not God's way of saying, well, if you do the right thing, I promise good things will happen to you. That's, that's not at all the case. Uh, the Beatitudes do not imagine a moral system where hardship automatically generates good fortune. Uh, the blessings are not the result of cosmic karma that those who are poor now will obviously become rich later. Those who are more now will obviously be happy later. Uh, that, that's not the case. See, because the hardship, the poverty, the mourning, it's real. And the reversal is not automatic or assured or inevitable. If anything, some of those hardships can be harder. Sometimes life does feel like one kick in the guts after another. The conditions of the oppressed do not normally turn out right. The cavalry does not normally turn up. And that is why God promises the reversal. This is not about karma, like if you suffer now, it'll be good later. No, this, this, is, this isn't the effects of a, of, a, of a moral universe. This is what God does to reverse the state of affairs. God is the one who lifts up the poor. God is the one who promises to comfort the more mournful. God is, God is the one who lifts people out of their wretched estate. And the conditions that do appear to be the worst, Jesus says, will eventually be reversed, and that's why those people are blessed. People are blessed only because God is the one who will reverse the things that have happened to people. The poor and dispossessed will be blessed by God receiving them into his kingdom. The mourners will be blessed by God giving them comfort, consolation, and joy. The meek will be blessed by God giving them the honor and esteem and dignity that they otherwise did not receive. What the world takes away, God promises to give. What the world does to them, God promises to undo. What the world deprives them of, God promises to reward them with. Now, the world blesses the famous and the fabulous, but Jesus declares the true blessings are reserved for others at the bottom of the pile. The Beatitudes do not beatify the poor and marginalized simply because that is their condition, but because of God's particular concern and love for them. God's kingdom will and now turn fortunes upside down so those who are at the bottom will one day be on the top. Or as Jesus said, the first will be last and the last will be first. But that is the prerogative of God's promise and God's power which goes against the expectations of the world. But what's the, what's the purpose of these Beatitudes? If the, if the Beatitudes are about God's power of reversal, what, what is the purpose of them? I mean, they can be obviously applied to the uh, individual. I mean, you, you could argue, and I, and I think this is the approach we should take, is that the Beatitudes, once we allow that promise to set in, they then change our attitude. Hence that wonderful... Um, Axiom, let the Beatitudes be your attitude. You know it's true because it rhymes. <laughs> and if it rhymes, you know it's totally true. We should let the Beatitudes, we should think in this top, topsy-turvy way because it goes against everything our culture. We don't normally think happy are those who are hopeless. We don't, we don't normally think like that. We don't think happy are the humble or, or happy are those who hunger or happy are those 
who show mercy. Rather, we tend to think things like blessed are the ambitious because they will follow their dreams or blessed are the beautiful because they will be admired and fawned over forever. Blessed are the rich because they will lack nothing. Blessed are those who are true to themselves because loving yourself is the greatest love of all. If you're a narcissist. Blessed are the rude and bombastic because they say what we're all thinking. Blessed are the sporting stars because they're physical prowess. Blessed are celebrities because I guess they're celebrities. But we're meant to take these reversals to heart in terms of how we live our lives today. We're meant to hunger, we're told, for righteousness. I mean, what, do you, what do you hunger when what do you hunger for? What, what do you really deeply desire? The things that you get up in the morning for, the things that make you keep going when life is hard. Do you, do you, do you hunger for righteousness? the same way your body craves oxygen. That's what we're to do. If we take these beatitudes, that's what it's going to mean. We're going to hunger for righteousness the same way you hunger for food. And on mercy, we're told to show mercy. Blessed are the merciful. But there are times I don't want to be merciful. There are times when I want to extract a disproportionate level of vengeance on people who have wronged me. I don't always feel like being merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's hard because I know my heart is not always pure. It's easily self-interested and easily enticed away through things that can corrupt and malign it, enjoying sin in its secret corridors, and cabins. Blessed too are the peacemakers who plow peace in the soils of conflict. But if you know anything about mediation or reconciliation, that is hard work. Easier to ostracize and alienate or to tolerate bad behavior. <coughs> Blessed too are those who are persecuted for righteousness or insulted, suffering reproach for their conviction. Easy to do, or sorry, easy to say, hard to do. Kingdom people are those who accept the Beatitudes as both promised and demand placed upon the lives. But the demands are not always easy. Haughtiness is easier than holiness. Character does not happen overnight. It's like a plant it needs to be carefully cultivated. But we have to let the Beatitudes be the things that give us consolation and drive and purpose, because that is the righteousness that characterizes the kingdom. Turning to verses 13 to 16, Jesus talks now about our way in the world. I mean, he uses that phrase, you are the salt of the earth. I mean, that's always it's always been a weird expression because, I mean, salt is something you normally like just throw away. You know, I mean, salt, it's like everywhere. I'm a, when I moved into Scotland, I, I moved into the house of a guy who recently died and I instantly know what he died of because I'm pretty sure his arteries had hardened because of the amount of salt this guy ate because every, nearly every room you could find stacks of salt 
everywhere. This guy loved his salt. He was not a sweet, he was not a sweet tooth. This guy was a savory. He had salt everywhere. But we know when we think of stuff like salt, we think it's like it's, it's ubiquitous. It's, it's like, you know, it's everywhere. How can it be precious? But you know, you know, Napoleon's army in Russia, partly one of the reasons that they lost was because of malnutrition. They could not get enough salt into the soldiers. And a long time ago in the army, in your little ration packs, they used to give you little salt pills because your body needs a certain degree of salt in order to break down um, water and apply it to your body. So salt is something you, you really, really need. And in the ancient world, salt was a preservative. You use things to keep things, uh, you use it to keep like food preserved, you know. And in Galilee, they, they used to produce this wonderful type of fish sauce that was, that, that was very famous. And we're, we're meant to be like that. We're meant to be agents of light and redemption. You see, we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. Salt preserves and light illuminates. And salt is not some common throwaway thing. Uh, it, 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 it's something that is very important. It, it has a preserving power. And our society needs salt. It needs light. Now, again, this is not in the sense of becoming a self-imposed morality Police. But there is the prophetic voice of the church teaching ourselves, our own people, how to love God and love others, how to love our neighbor, how to do good and to resist evil. But if the salt loses its saltiness, it's then good for nothing. And the danger is we, we, we simply become white powder of no use to anything. And in regards to light, Jesus says, believers are the light of the world. And, and, and th this is the imagery extended from Isaiah. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, you know, reflecting the radiant glory, goodness, and love of God to others. But sometimes they would reflect that inwardly. They would be either concerned with imitating the nations around them or more concerned with their separation from the nations. But we're meant to be both in this world that is cold, brutal, and dark. It needs salt. It needs light. It needs as well a city on a hill. I reckon that would make a great name for a church. I'm definitely in favor of that one. Now, it is a great name for a church because we're not meant to be a bunch of, um, you know, dare I say, you know, cloistered believers far away. You know, I, I, get, the, the, I get the idea you know, the world is terrible, it's, it's difficult, Christians are not the most popular, so let's go out somewhere beyond the Dandenongs, set up our own Christian commune, we'll sit around, say the Lord's Prayer twice a day, do some good readings from the Book of Common Prayer, baptize ourselves once a month, stay pure, and just wait for God to wipe them all out, all the pagans and the sinners. Let's just, let's just go out somewhere in the wilderness get close to God and nature and just wait for, wait for God to wipe them all out. But that's, that's not what we do, you see, because light is for shining. Okay? Salt is not for being kept inside a jar, Jesus teaches us. You know, we're meant to be out there in the world where it is difficult, where it is hard. Salt is for shaking and light is for shining. You don't preserve the light by covering something over it. Because when we do, we're not trading in the task of our discipleship. 
We can never trade in self-preservation at the expense of our very mission. So what are we to take away from these words? We've got the, we've got the, 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 the Beatitudes here, which is both promise and direction for disciples. We have this mission statement to be salt and light. I, I think if we want to take this all, sum this all up, we're meant to live upside down values in the world, values which don't really make sense. Most of, of you are here because you have made unsensible choices. You've given up career. You've put aside other things to come to Bible college. I guarantee you at no point if you ever go to see a financial advisor are the words, stop what you're doing and go to Bible college right now. You have chosen to do that. Maybe family said no. Maybe uh, other people said, mm, maybe that's not for you. But you've chosen to do unreasonable, topsy-turvy things. And that's what we do. We, we, we play the opposites game. We believe the poor are blessed. The merciful receive mercy. You know, I, I love playing the opposites game with my kids. That's how, that's how I teach them stuff. So I'll say to my kids, like, what's the opposite of up? And then they say, I say, what's the opposite of sharp? I say, what's the opposite of sister? What's the opposite of dark? What's the opposite of blue? What's the opposite of hairy? Shaved, I'll take bald. <laughs> the opposite of sausage. Who said egg? <laughs> the opposite of sausage is not a sausage. In this, in this, passage, Jesus plays the opposite of games. He says the poor will be blessed. The hungry will be fed. The meek will be honored. He wants us to play the opposites game in our life. And because out of that great reversal comes a great mission to be a, a, a salt, a, a, a preserving food in the world, something that cleanses food and crackles in fire. If we put you in fire, would you crackle? Would you crackle like salt or just do what I would do, scream in pain probably? <laughs> but we've got, to, we've got to be like salt. We've got to crackle in the fire. We've got to preserve the things, balm the wounds we come across. We've got to radiate light and warmth in a world that is cold and it is dark. For us, the Beatitudes, and so to remember, the Beatitudes are not simply quaint spiritual facts. I mean, that's the way we often treat them. Quaint spiritual facts. They're not. They're promises of reversal. They're challenges. And when we take them seriously, then we can be salt. Then we can be light. Then we can be a city on a hill.